priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Well, the book of Hebrews has helped us week in and week out consider the supremacy of Christ over all things. It's helped us to understand that that Christ, as the supreme high priest, as the ruler over all things, the one who is supreme, that, that calls us to action, that calls us to live in light of what he's done. And so in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we saw Christ's superiority over angels. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw that Christ is superior over both Moses and Joshua. And I think you've probably, you've sensed this, but throughout the book of Hebrews, we have a pattern of these cycles. There's a consistent transition going back and forth from stark warnings to comforting promises and then back to warnings, and the cycle repeats itself. And tonight, that cycle is still circling, and we transition here from warning to promise. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been confronted with warnings geared towards those who are considering abandoning Christ. We've seen if you abandon Christ, then you will not enter into the promised land. Your fate will be just like those of Israel who were in the wilderness and were prohibited from entering into the land. Well, here in our passage tonight, the warning transitions to a comforting promise. Here we are told that we are to cling to Christ because of who he is. He is our perfect and great high priest. And we are called here to hold fast, not just because of the consequences of apostasy, but here we are called to hold fast because of the benefits that are associated with trusting Christ. And this is important for us to recognize. Think about a parent who's, who's parenting a child. They can do so from two different perspectives. They can parent their child with, with positive motivation, and sometimes they parent their child with negative motivation times the child is motivated by rewards and at other times that child is motivated by understanding the consequences that will result from not living in obedience to what what the child's parents are telling them to do so if you if you listen to your mommy today when i get home we will get to play outside right that's a positive motivation however at times your child will receive a negative motivation. If you disobey mommy today, you are going to be disciplined. Consider a coach who's teaching young athletes how to compete as a team. The coach will motivate his team by positive means and sometimes by negative means. He will constantly remind the team that by practicing hard, they will be able to to win the tournament that they are preparing for. And then he'll turn and say, If you are not going to practice hard today in practice, we're going to run sprints. 
Now the goal here is not to tell you which form of motivation is better. In fact, what we see in our text tonight is that both forms of motivation are necessary. That's what we see in Hebrews. At times, the motivation is framed negatively, like we've seen over the last couple of weeks. But tonight, in one of the most beautiful passages in all of Hebrews, we see that that God is encouraging his church to obedience by, by putting on display the beauty of Christ and who he is. So here we have a positive call to obedience called to obey by examining who Christ is. So let's begin by considering who Christ, our great high priest, is. We'll primarily see this in verses 14 and 15. So notice what verses 14 and 15 say. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So tonight, as we're looking at our passage, what we see is is that we, we are called to action based on doctrinal truths. So based on the truths that we see in our passage about Jesus Christ, we are then called to action And it's essential that we understand this. Every command that you find in the scriptures, they are always rooted in doctrinal truths about who God is or who Christ is. That's exactly what we see tonight. This is a great example of that. So both of the commands here, the two specific commands in verse 14 and in verse 16 are both rooted in the person and work of Christ. So in 14, we're called to hold fast In 16, we are called to approach the throne of grace. And both of these commands are given to us in response to truths that we find here about Jesus. Notice what we see in verse 14. Christ has passed through the heavens. And then in 16, we see, or in 15 rather, we see that he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And because of these two realities, we're told we are to hold fast and we are to approach the throne of grace with confidence. So every command that we see here is rooted in a doctrinal truth about who Jesus is. So let's begin in verse 14. The first thing we see about Christ, our great high priest, is the fact that he has passed through the heavens. Now, this is one of those little phrases that should actually cause us to pause for a moment and ask a few questions, right? What does it mean that Jesus has passed through the heavens? Is that significant at all? If you're anything like me, you probably read this verse and just kind of breezed through that. It didn't seem very significant at first reading. And so you skip down to verse 15 where it's very obvious what you find in 15 is extremely significant. A God who is able to sympathize with us and and meet us in our weaknesses. But I want to posit to you that what we see here in verse 14 is just as significant. This is actually the introduction to a theme that is going to come up again and again throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus does not only have access to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies like the other high priests, Jesus has access to God's holy divine presence in heaven. 
So as God's high priest, Christ has entered into the very presence of God by passing through the heavens. You see, the former high priests, they entered into God's presence once a year by entering into the inner sanctuary of the temple where they would experience God's presence. And it was, it was a a sacred place. It was holy. It was a holy place. God's presence resided in the inner sanctuary of the temple in a very significant way. But God's presence was not only found in the temple and it wasn't bound to the temple. He's bigger than what the Holy of Holies had to offer. 1 Kings 8 Verse 27, right after Solomon has built this massive, elaborate temple for God, full of gold, full of silver, full of precious stones and intricate, inter, uh, uh, intricate paintings and, and all of these details that, that magnify the beauty of God. Here's what, here's what Solomon says, 1 Kings eight twenty-seven. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. Think about this for a moment. The inner sanctuary of the temple was immensely holy. God's presence was so intensely manifest in that location that if, a, if an individual, if a priest entered into that place unprepared, he would die in the moment that he entered into the Holy of Holies. And yet, there is a sense in which the Holy of Holies is not even comparable to what? takes place in God's heavenly temple. The full immensity of God's presence consumes God's heavenly throne room. We need to think about this for a moment. Think about God's presence. Have you thought about this? What what does it mean that God is present somewhere? God is present everywhere, right? Psalm 139 says as much. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10. It it tells us that there is nowhere we can go in this creation to escape God's presence. But he is not the same in the way that he relates to his creation in his presence in the same way everywhere we go. So think about this for a moment. God is fully present in someone's house while, while an individual is home alone, looking at his computer, at pornography. God is present there. But not in the same way that God is present in the Holy of Holies. Right? That, that individual who's committing sin right in front of God doesn't die by God's grace in the moment for committing sin right in the presence of God. That's not the way God's presence always is. God's presence is different at different times in different places. Think about Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments on top of the mountain. Before Moses goes up, God tells Moses, do not even let an animal touch the mountain. Because of its impurity, it will die the moment the animal touches the mountain. Don't let any of the people come up the mountain. Only you, Moses, are allowed up on top of my mountain. 
the inner sanctuary of the temple. It's this little room where God's presence dwelt in a special way. In John 2, Jesus goes where? To the temple and he begins to turn over the tables and and cast out all these synagogue leaders from the temple courtyard. So they're out in the courtyard of the temple and they are extracting the Israelites. They're committing sins, abominations, right outside the temple. But they don't die for doing that. And yet, if they were 30 yards away from that location, if they were inside the inner sanctuary of the temple, they would have died in a moment. So what makes the, those 30 yards so special? What, what makes the inner sanctuary so special? You see, there are certain places where God's presence is more intense. It's not that he's more present there or more fully present there. It's that his presence is more intense there. It's experienced in a unique way. There are certain places where God decides to break through the broken, sin-trodden creation in order to make his presence more fully known in that location. And let's pause and think about this for a moment. There is a heavenly temple outside of the sin-fractured creation that we experience where God's presence is untainted and unadulterated. It's pure. It's absolute. It's, it's intense. And so when Hebrews says that Jesus passed through the heavens, we need to recognize that this means that Jesus has entered into the untainted, unfiltered, unbuffered, raw presence of God, and he has survived there. Not only that, he sat down on the throne, in that throne room, as a declaration that this throne room is mine. The reason that this room is holy in the first place is because I am here. That is who Christ is. Does that make you feel needy? Do you begin to ask yourself, how in the world am I going to enter into God's presence? How am I ever going to survive standing in the direct, unfiltered, unbuffered presence of God? How is that going to happen? This leads to the next aspect of Christ that we see here in our text. Even as Christ is the exalted one who has passed through the heavens and has sat down at the right hand of God, he is yet profoundly sympathetic to needy sinners like us. He is sympathetic to our weaknesses. Jesus is not only the exalted, majestic Son of God, he is also the suffering servant. He is the man who has the ability to sympathize with you and with me right now in our weakness, in our neediness. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
Jesus is not some king who sits in some ivory tower somewhere and has no connection to the experience of humanity. He is not lifted up to some otherworldly throne room without the slightest clue of what it means to be a human being. You know, it's typical that we think of a king as some privileged individual who's served every day, day and night, in his lush, private residence by all of his servants. We tend to think of a king as those, or or, or as, as the one who hardly has a clue about the difficulties of this life. He doesn't know physical pain. He doesn't know suffering. He doesn't know what it's like to be hungry. He doesn't know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. He doesn't know what it's like to to wonder where where I'm going to get the money to fill up my car with gas so that I can make it to work on time. That king doesn't know what it's like to not know where his next meal is going to come from. Yet Jesus has experienced pain. He was well acquainted with suffering. He knew the effects of hunger. 40 days in the wilderness without food. He lived a life of poverty. And remember, at times, even his disciples were were in dismay, wondering where in the world are we going to get food? They're panicked. Yet Jesus did not only know physical pain, he knew emotional pain. He knew strife. He knew the the heartfelt, excruciating pain of seeing a friend pass away right before his eyes. He knew the misery of desertion and abandonment. He knew the sorrow of betrayal, even when it comes from the closest of friends or even a family member. He even understood the unfathomable angst of staring death in the face. He knew what it was like to anticipate, not only experience, but anticipate immense suffering and then go through that suffering. And we also need to understand that Jesus knew the depth of temptation. Believe it or not, he knew the depth of temptation far better than anyone in this room. He has been tempted beyond what you or I could ever even imagine. You're saying, how in the world do you know that? Think about it. The time when we feel temptations, ferocity the most, is when we actually endure temptation to the end and come out on the other side successfully. But let's be real, that doesn't happen very often. Well, think about this. For Christ, that happened every single time. Even Satan himself came to Christ, tempting him for days on end. You see, we experience temptation, but typically as that experience intensifies, we decide we don't want to bear it and we give in. Jesus knew the greater weight of temptation. 
because he always rode out that, that temptation to its end. I grew up five miles from the coast in South Florida. And because of that, I've been through a number of hurricanes. Um, and one of the, the most eerie aspects of going through a, a hurricane where you experience a direct hit, like the eye of the hurricane comes over your house. One of the strangest things is the fact that the storm increases in intensity moment by moment for hours on end, sometimes days on end, if that storm is moving slowly. Because the closer you get to the center of the storm, the more intense the winds blow. And the longer the storm lasts, the more intense the storm becomes. So when you think that the wind is getting loud, it just gets louder. When you think that the wind has started to sound like a, like a freight train outside, all of a sudden you're like, man, it sounds like that freight train's just getting closer. Temptation is the same way. Its intensity grows minute by minute. And what so often happens is that we decide that we want to break from it, and so we give in to the temptation. Jesus withstood the highest winds of temptation every single time. He never gave in. He did it over and over and over again, and he never gave in. He was without sin. He knew the full brunt of temptation because he always bore its heaviest weight. And this is where we need to stop and just stand in awe because that is our king who is sympathetic. He's able to empathize. He's able to understand. And more than that, he is able to help us in our time of need because he knows exactly what we are going through. He's been through it. You see, in light of all these realities, this calls us to action. That's why verse 14, we're called to hold fast to our confession. In light of these realities about the person of Christ, we are called to action. Because Christ is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and because he has passed through the heavens, we are called to hold fast to our confession. So verse 14 calls us to this very thing. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So when we think about the fact that Christ has been called or, or has passed through the heavens and we think about the fact that he's able to sympathize with our needs, that that. Those truths in themselves call us to hold fast, right? This truth demands action. Christ is the one who has access to God. He is the one who has entered into the very presence of God's throne room and he has sat down and he makes an offer. If you confess faith in Christ, you get into the holy temple. If you confess faith in Christ, you get to ride on his coattails, All you need to do is confess that you are a sinner. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ in faith. And when you do that, you get 
access to God. You see, holding fast to our confession in Christ drastically differs from every other reward that we receive in this life. Think about just one example, trying to get into a school. You offer that school resumes. You go to the admission counselor with your resume. You need to prove you're a good student. Here's my GPA. Here are all the extracurricular activities I was involved in. Here's my record of community service hours. Here are the sports I played. By the way, I was the captain of that team. Here are all of my qualifications, but you don't stop there. Then you get your letters of reference, your letters of recommendation. And so your, your teacher over here is lifting up your praises. Your coach over here is showing how hard of a worker you are. The mentor that you have explains how committed you are to the community and to your schooling. And you don't get an acceptance letter unless you are qualified to get into the school. You need to prove that you are worthy to be considered the cream of the crop. But have you ever felt that feeling when someone who, who may not be as worthy as you are gets into the school, they make the cut while you do not? You feel that you deserve to get into the school. You deserved to get the acceptance letter, but for some reason you didn't and that guy got in. And so you begin to think through all of the reasons that you are qualified I had a 4.0 GPA. I was the president of my senior class. I had a 32 on my ACT. Why in the world did I not get into that school? That guy over there, he had a 3.4. He wasn't the president of the senior class. He had a 26 on his ACT. Like, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. And we have the tendency, if we are not careful, to carry the same exact mindset and mentality into God's heavenly temple. God, here's my resume. I've been on a couple of mission trips. I've been to City Impact. I've shared the gospel with non-Christian friends. And yet, that does not grant you access to God's throne room. Because apart from Christ, you and I are just like the unqualified priest who enters into the Holy of Holies, let alone the direct presence of God, and we die in a moment. We have no right, we have no chance to enter into God's pure, unadulterated presence does not matter how long you have been in a small group. It doesn't matter how many small groups you have been in. It doesn't matter if you've led a small group. It doesn't matter if you've been discipled, how many people have discipled you or how many people you have discipled. It doesn't matter how many people you have led to Christ. It does not matter how long you've been walking in impurity. At the end of the day, none of these qualifications will grant you access into God's throne room. So, we hold fast to Christ. We cling to him because he is our only access into the, into the throne room. We hold fast to him by placing all of our hope and all of our faith in the finished and accomplished work of Christ. So when you go into God's throne room, you don't go, here's my, here's my resume. No, you say, here's Christ's resume. 
When you go into the throne room, you don't go, here's, here's my parents or my pastors or my mentor's letter of recommendation. You go, no, here's my letter of recommendation directly from the hand of Son of God, Jesus Christ. Rock of Ages, an ancient hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, we come to God with one plea. Here's my confession. It's in your son. That's our one plea. And let's not forget that because Christ is sympathetic to us while we are in our weaknesses, he will help us to cling tight to our confession. Even in the face of the most intense temptations or the most intense trials, Christ grants us access to God's kingdom, but he does more than that. He actually brings us to the kingdom. It's not as though he just opens the door and says, okay, have at it. Do all of your striving. Maybe you'll be able to arrive at the threshold and enter in. No, instead he picks us up and he brings us there. He's a sympathetic high priest who is able to help us in our time of need. So when we feel weak, and you should feel weak on a regular basis. He offers strength. And when you feel needy, which you should feel needy, he meets your need. And so we come to his throne of grace with confidence. Verse 16, confidently approach the throne of grace. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help those in time of need. Again, this command is built on the idea of who Jesus is. Because he has passed through the heavens, because he is a sympathetic high priest who is able to help us in our times of need, draw near with confidence. Draw near with confidence. He is the king of that throne room because he's sitting on the, on the throne. And at the very same time, he is sympathetic and he is willing and able to offer us help, to offer us grace. Now, maybe you're thinking back to our conversation last week where we talked extensively about Hebrews chapter four, verse one, and the fear of God. And you're thinking about the fact that fear includes reverence, it, it includes awe, but at the same time, it, it, it also consists of a legitimate fear of who God is. And you're thinking, wait a second, here we're called to approach God's throne with confidence. Here we are called to approach God's throne with assurance and certainty that he will offer us help. How, how does this stand in in junction with the idea that we are called to fear God. How did these two ideas come together? Well, I want to point out that though these two ideas are in tension, these are 
not foes, these are friends. These two ideas are friends. So how? How are these two ideas friends, not foes? Well, the fear of God is rooted in an understanding of who God is, right? Because he is holy, he pours out his wrath on sin. And that helps us to resist temptation and to walk in obedience. A proper fear of God also causes us to understand our, our deep sense of neediness when we disobey. Right? If you have a true fear of God, then you truly understand the consequences of sin. And when you walk in sin, when you fall in disobedience, you're left going, I have a need. I have a need. And actually the fear of God then points us directly to our verse tonight. When you have a proper fear of God and a proper understanding of your neediness, then we have this need for a savior. And it brings us directly to our passage. We have a king who sits on the throne of heaven and offers grace and mercy to people when they fail to walk in obedience. So turn to him. Find refuge in his arms of grace. Find rest in his mercy. Find hope in his kindness. Find confidence in these promises. Draw near to the throne of grace because we have a great high priest who dwells in the presence of God and freely offers grace to those who seek him. We have confidence as we strive to hold fast to Christ because he is freely offering us mercy. But our temptation is not to flee to Christ. Our temptation is to flee from Christ when we are caught in our sin. So often we act like the foolish criminal, right, who's caught, caught in lawlessness and decides to run away from the authority. That's us. How quick we are to run away from a gracious God who's freely offering mercy. How quick we are to run in the opposite direction. Instead of clinging to the beautiful throne of grace, we decide to cling to our wretched sin. And what we need to realize is that we must not run away from the king who has caught us in our transgressions. Instead, we need to run to him. We need to flee to his grace. We need to make a beeline sprint towards his throne room asking for his mercy in our time of need so pray seek God's forgiveness for your sin plead with him asking him to remove your guilt right entreat God and ask ask him to give you the strength that you need to battle against your sin that's how we flee to him we seek him out we run to him, not away from him. But I also want to help us to see how fleeing to the, the throne of grace is to be done also in, in the community. It's to be done in the local church. Right? This is the purpose of our small group ministries in many ways. Our small group ministries are an opportunity for us to seek God's forgiveness in the context of community. Asking others to hold us accountable. Confessing our sins, yes, to God, but also to our brothers and sisters who are around us. Asking them to help us. 
This is why we seek out mentors and, and people to disciple us in the church. We ask older and wiser men and women, asking them to help us fight against our sin. We ask them to help us walk in faithfulness. And I need to point out that one of the most beneficial aspects of a good accountability partner or a good mentor is that that individual or that group, you know they're a good accountability partner or a good mentor when, when they remind you to seek the throne of grace on a regular basis. A brother or sister in Christ who is calling you to turn to repentance and look towards God's throne of grace. That's a good brother or sister in Christ. And this should also remind everyone in this room when other people come to you confessing their sin. One of the first things that you need to do is turn that individual's eyes towards the throne room. Look to Christ where there is forgiveness on offer. There's a fountain of mercy that is flowing and it will never stop flowing. You want to be a good accountability partner? Constantly point out that there is free grace on offer. Turn to him. And so if you were fleeing to the throne room, surround yourself with brothers and sisters who are willing and able to remind you that you need to do that. And if you're one of those individuals who's surrounding someone else, constantly point their attention, their gaze up to Christ. Because, the end of verse 15, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's not forget why we approach the throne of grace in the first place. It is because that when we draw near, Mercy and grace are on hand. God freely offers his mercy to those who seek it. He freely offers forgiveness to those who ask. And so we are not left wondering when we approach God's throne. Is there forgiveness actually available for me? You don't have to wonder. Instead, you confidently approach him with boldness with a recognition that God is in the business of forgiving needy sinners like you and like me. And not only that, when we come to him, he he offers us mercy and he offers us grace. So he offers us forgiveness and then he offers us the gift of strength to fight against sin. He gives us the ability, remember, he doesn't just open the doors of the throne room and then call us to, to strive for it. And he picks us up by his grace and he brings us there himself. That is the God that we have. This is why we hold firm to Christ. This is why we draw near to Christ because he is willing to offer us help even when we are in our neediest of states. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who cares for us so immensely that all we can do is just stand in awe who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf. Who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you would die for us? Who are we that you would constantly offer forgiveness and strength to fight? Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.